Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Sabe sankhara anicca, sabe sankhara dukkha, sabe dhamma anathati. There's most of you, even though you don't know Pali, know there's uh, the last uh, few lines I said after the homage to the, the Lord Buddha, was that uh, all Sankaras, all conditioned things, are impermanent. They are all dukkha, all dhammas, the non-self. And uh, today I'd like to, uh, to talk about the, the last of those three. All dhammas are non-self, uh, anatta, because it is the understanding of anatta, of non-self, which does form the, the pivotal point in this training towards enlightenment. It's what makes the abandoning of defilements possible. It what, it's what leads to the, the effortless practice where one can concentrate the mind with uh, little difficulty. And the more that one understands the, the meaning of anatta, non-self, the deeper one's penetration of the Dhamma gets, and the deeper the penetration of this thing we call the mind, uh, is the idea of a self which actually blocks one seeing what this jitter really is, and it keeps one involved in the world. So the investigation into anatta is a very powerful uh, tool uh, in this uh, practice we call uh, Buddhism. Not only does it lead to insight, but it also leads to samadhi as well. And just uh, in one of the interviews today, we're just uh, mentioning that uh, the path of samatha, the path of vipassana, will always go together. And uh, sometimes that if you are focusing on developing quiet states of mind, especially in developing jhana. You should not uh, forget that uh, developing insight along the way, insight into the ways of uh, calming the mind, insight into the obstacles of the mind, or best of all, insight into the dhamma, will clear away whole heaps of obstacles. So, settling the mind down and gaining these beautiful states. You should never forget the development of wisdom along the way. And if ever there is an obstacle to your peaceful mind, use wisdom. Never forget the force of the Idipadas, the Vimangsa Samadhi, which is uh, one of the most powerful of all of the four Idipadas. It's that ability to investigate as you go along. Investigation which is more effective in clearing obstacles than mere willpower or brute persistence. Always in the Buddhist teachings you should know that wisdom is much more powerful than willpower. In fact, you should also know that most of willpower is deriving from your illusion of self which is why, in most cases, it's not that effective. So to go back to, actually, in that simile of uh, Samatha and Vipassana acting as a pair, uh, many of you will have uh, heard that uh, beautiful simile of uh, Samatha and Vipassana being the messengers. And the explanation of that uh, sutta in the commentary where the two messengers, messengers of Samat and Vipassana, calm and insight, compared to the general and the wise minister, who go to, as it were, 
uh, teach a, uh, the son of one of the kings who is misbehaving in one of the border provinces. And the wise minister, when he starts, when they go into the room, we've got the five friends of the prince, tell the both of them to go and get lost. And the five friends, uh, the five hindrances, who are the obstacles to Samatha and Vipassana. And uh, Vipassana insight is not sufficient to overcome the five hindrances. But when the general, the fierce, battle-hardened general, gets out his sword and starts flashing it in front of the faces of the five friends of the prince, the five hindrances, they scatter, they disappear. No one knows where they've gone, but they don't appear for a long time. Once samadhi occurs in the mind, the five hindrances disappear for long periods of time. Where the five friends of the prince disappeared, then the wise minister tries to teach the prince. And again the prince says, get lost, who are you? You may be, you may have come from my father, but in this province I am the ruler, I am the lord. That's Mara speaking in the mind. In this province, here inside of you, Mara lords over that realm. However, what Samadhi does, what the general does, it takes the prince by the throat, puts a sword to his head and says, I don't care who you are, listen. And with Samadhi holding the head of the prince, Vipassana has a chance to work. Insight has an opportunity to work. And there's uh, one of the people saying in the interview that uh, not only does <coughs> Samadhi hold the mind still to give that steadiness of the mind, it's as if the, the general also holds an amplifier to the, the wise minister's mouth. The insight becomes much more powerful, much more strong when there is samadhi in the mind. That's why these two together work as a pair. The other simile which I like to give, which I haven't given for a while, is the simile of the flashlight and the map. I gave this simile to the Anagarikas and novices last Saturday that uh, to find the treasure hidden in the forest you need both a flashlight and a map. A flashlight because it's dark to find your way. The map to give you the directions and where that treasure is hidden. If you've only got a map, even if it's the best map in the world but no flashlight, you won't find the treasure. If you've got a very strong flashlight but no map, you can see where you're going but you don't know where the treasure lies still you won't find the treasure. If you've got map and treasure, so if you've got map and flashlight, then you will find that treasure. In that simile, the treasure obviously stands for Nibbana, for Magapala, the path and insight, path and fruit. And the map is the teachings of the Buddha, the Dhamma, a beautiful explanation of things like anatta, anicca, dukkha, the Four Noble Truths. And I think in this monastery each one of you has got that map very clear. But what one needs also is the flashlight, the powerful mind. That mind which is born of jhana experience, where the five hindrances are so suppressed and the mind is so powerful. It becomes like a flashlight. Whatever it looks at, it illuminates, sees deeply into it. Not only can it hold that object still, like the general holding the head of the prince, but also the, the words of insight are much more penetrating. The mind is powerful, receptive, bright, workable. And that's where insight happens. The big insights, the insights which see, see deeply into anatta, 
dukkha anicca. How many times have you heard those words? But have you understood them yet? If you understood anatta to its depth, at the very least you'd be a stream enterer, if not higher. If you understood dukkha, then you'd have nothing to do with this samsara. You'd be on the way out. You'd be an arya. If you understood anicca, impermanence, you understood it fully, you'd understand the other two as well, and you too would be at least seka, if not aseka. You've heard these words before, why is it that you cannot come up to another monk and tell them in private, today I reach the stage of stream entry, once returner, non-returner, today arahata was attained in this very monastery, in this very life. Why is it you can't say that? It is because you have not penetrated fully these simple things. The anatta, the non-self. The, those of you who have heard my talks before know that I approach anatta, the beginnings of the development of anatta, sanya by looking at what you take to be a self, what actually is the illusion of self which blocks one from claiming one's inheritance as a bhikkhu, you know, the paths and the fruits. That's your inheritance, that's what the Buddha left for you. It's there as it were on the altar. Go and pick it up and take it. But there's something blocking you. What is it that one takes as a self? as a me. Whatever you take as a self, whatever you identify with, is identified with on a very deep level. These aren't sort of superficial teachings. These go to the very heart of that which you protect and hold most dearly inside of your mind. If, uh, little things like the body. These are the simple things you should be able to disidentify with. This body is just loaned by nature to you. Reflect again and again that this body is not you, is not yours. When I say it is not yours, you should look upon it like the car you've borrowed from a friend. You should look Look after it, but be willing to give it back to the friend when they ask for it back. Look upon it like the kuti you have here in this monastery. It does not belong to you. You should look after it, keep it clean, keep it well maintained. When it comes to the time when I ask you to move, you should move to another hut or to no hut. This is how you should look upon your body. If you look upon your body in this way, if it gets sick, if it gets ill, if it starts to fade away and die, you do not feel grief, you do not feel fear. You realize you've done your best to maintain it, but it's the nature of every hut in this forest. Eventually, you will get sick and die. It will fall apart and will have to be replaced or completely left to go back to nature. Still in this forest here, we have the first hut which I stayed in, the half-water tank hut. As just a reminder, that used to be the place I lived in, now it's just the roof left. The rest of the hut has gone back to nature, in the fire, burnt by impermanence. In the same way that your body will one day be burnt, gone back to nature. When you reflect and know that, the aches and the pains, the sickness, the illnesses, even the final illnesses, are looked upon with equanimity, are looked upon with, <coughs> with a sense of understanding, a sense of acceptance, an, accept, an understanding of this is the fate 
of something which does not belong to you? Why is it that sometimes pain in the body disturbs us? Only when, in a deep level, we take this as my pain, as if it's really affecting something important inside of us. When I talk about identifying with the body as a self, nearly all of you, I would say, if not all of you, on an intellectual, superficial level, would know this body is not me, would know it's going to die, would know it came from your mother and father, and eventually go back into the, into the ground, into the air. You know that on a superficial level, but when you get sick, when you're close to death, that is when you know on a deeper level whether you have yet to cut that deep association with this body of yours. One of the insights which comes from gaining a jhana, which is very difficult but it doesn't arise. I can't see how anyone could be so stupid. If they attain a jhana, they can't get this insight. It's to know that the mind can dwell independently of the body. To know that if the body falls apart, is destroyed by death, that this thing we call the mind is not destroyed at this moment. Death doesn't destroy the mind. Parinibbana ends this thing we call the mind. But just seeing that much, just knowing the independence of the mind from the body, is enough, it should be enough, to give you dispassion towards this body. When you know the mind, apart from the body, the mind which is separated from the five senses which connects it to the body. When you see the mind alone, rewakened, aloof, separated, secluded from the body and all the affairs of the body, you can see the jitter in jhana, then you will know at least that much not on a superficial intellectual level, but an experiential, the deep level of having been there and known it for oneself. And at the very least, will sort of cut the illusion of the self as being anything to do with the body. Remember the illusion of self is not just identifying the body as being you, but also identifying the body as belonging to you being mine. The two major aspects of the illusion of self, me and mine. There's also the the illusion of conceit which comes up with the self, but I'll deal with that later on I hope in this talk if I get round to it. If you understand fully that the body has nothing to do with the self, it's not mine, it cuts away at a lot of distraction, a lot of external business, which especially in the time that you sit quietly in your huts developing jhanas, you should realize has nothing to do with you at all. If you're sitting and pain or disturbance comes up in your body, you reflect that this is not my body, this is not my pain, has nothing to do with me. Give it away and turn back on your meditation object. You know if you have completely cut away at the identification of the body, if you can do that. If you can't do that, if the ache, if the pain, if the disturbance in the body continues to disturb you, Why? Why can't the mind let it go? Why can't you just go and attend to the meditation object? You find if you can attend to the meditation object, just the pain and the aches disappear. And the body doesn't suffer as a result from your lack of attention to it. 
you will know, and every meditator who knows jhanas will agree with me, I would expect, that you will know that if you just disregard the aches and the pains in the body and enter into deep samadhi, when you emerge out afterwards, the body is fine. Aches and pains are just not there. Don't know how it works, the body seems to settle its aches and pains by itself when you're in deep samadhi. Any sort of pain or irritations in the body seem to go without moving at all. This shows you just how this body is a great uh, con man or con woman if you're a woman continually deceiving you with its demands saying that if you scratch me, if you move me, if you sort me out this way then I'll, I'll be your friend, I won't disturb you anymore but you should know that as soon as you pander to one part of the body in meditation by moving it, by scratching it, by swallowing the saliva or whatever it doesn't stop there, it just asks for something else the only way to stop that demanding body is to say no to it and not even pay any attention whatsoever. It's called letting go. But letting go can only happen if you understand at a very deep level, at a root level, that this body is not yours. And it doesn't matter if you die in meditation. You, those of you who have been in my hut, you know that on the shrine I have in my hut I got one of my favorite photos of this monk whose body was found sitting in meditation in the cave in Thailand. He'd been dead for many days, many months, I don't know. But they've got a picture of this, this dried corpse of a monk sitting in full lotus. He died in meditation. And that's why I have that uh, photo on my shrine. That's the sort of attitude one should have to be able to give away this body enough to allow it even to die. If you, You're going to die sooner or later. Do you want to die in a hospital bed in all sorts of postures? with tubes and stuff dripping out of you, uh, connected to you? Or do you want to die cross-legged, back straight? Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to end this life, if you're going to end this life at all? If you happen to be a stream-enterer, a sotapanna, and you happen to die while you're in jhana, then you become an anagami, straight away. Jhana-anagami an anagami born of jhana. Marvellous way to, to make that transition from stream entra to anagami. So, see if you can get into a jhana and die in the jhana. Marvellous way to get to that almost supreme path and fruit. But you can only do that if you really know at a deep level this body is not yours, so give it a try. Just let go of this body, little aches and pains, just push them aside and don't allow the mind to go back to them, it's nothing to do with you. Same so if I go into my hut and sit on my meditation cushion, I'm not the abbot anymore, I don't care about the monastery outside, neither do I care about any of you. I have to say, <laughs> when I'm in meditation, you're gone, bye-bye. Same as your body, my body, when you go in deep meditation, bye-bye body, you're gone. That's the only way you can enter deep meditation states, but it has to depend upon your understanding that this body is not me, is not mine, not a self, and doesn't belong to me. But that's only enough to get rid of the body and the five senses. As you're developing meditation, deep meditation, now you find there is the, the doer, 
the controller, you know, that which is always giving orders and assessing, it manifests as the, the uh, internal commentary, thought, you probably hear it even now, trying to control, even sometimes trying to control the talk. Sometimes you think, oh, I wish he'd stop quickly. I wish he'd talk about something else. Well, I wish he'd go on for hours. This is just that controller inside. This is what I call that which does. That which does. Do you take that as a self? Or as yours? Belongs to you? Put your investigation on that point. That which does. What is it? Is it me? Is it mine? Is it a self? If you investigate that which does, just watch it and know its stupidity. Know the fact that it never really achieves its goal and in fact only ends up hindering you from attaining bliss. But it's just like an old person who just talks and talks and talks, gossiping about nothing in particular. It's just a noise, it's like the crow in the forest. Ga, ga, ga. That's all it is. And if you can disassociate with it, if you can let it go, it becomes silent. You're on the, the door to jhanas. Why is it that you can't silence that? The reason is, is because the view of a self is intricately, intricately interwoven with that doer. That which does is you, so you think, so you perceive, coming from a deep view. All the time so far in your life, you think that you're in control, that you've done this, that you've worked your way to this monastery. It's all because of all the things which you have done. It's not you who have made you come to this monastery. If it's anyone, it's the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. That's who's responsible for all this, not you. The defilements, Mara, responsible for all your stupidity. Disidentify the doer from a self. It's not you who's pushing the buttons and pulling the levers. Nor is the doer coming from somewhere else. This thing, the doer, is completely conditioned. If you want to look upon the, the Sankara, which is the great house builder, it's this, the doer. And to know what I said at the beginning, Sabe Sankara Anicca, Sabe Sankara Dukkha, Sabe Dhamma, which includes Sabe Sankara Anatta. The doer is impermanent, uncertain, completely unsatisfactory, actually it's an irritation. At the gateway into jhana, the doer, you just know how much an irritation it is. Because it is this great barrier which you know, stops you from going in. So often it's the case that monks, lay people, they can see jhana. They're just over here and jhana's just over there. The beautiful bliss, they can actually see it and feel its power. They can't enter. The doer won't let them. They can't give up the sense of control. If you can give up that sense of control, the mind, just nature, will do the rest for you. If the jitter, this thing, the mind, sees you know, the powerful samadhi nimitta, the jhana nimitta, it sees that degree of piti sukha, you will be attracted to it. Many monks, nuns, anagarikas, feel the mind going in. 
drawn by the nature of the attraction. But they get involved, they try and control through exuberance or fear, through giving commands, trying to assess at this moment, what is this, what should I do? It's already gone. You have to be absolutely silent at this point. No control, no manipulating, no doing. If you look back, you find it was the absence of doing which got you to that point. And then you destroy it all again. Because if you enter into a jhana, you can't do anything inside there. This part of this illusion of self gets cut away completely. The first time that you get into like a jhana, or especially the second jhana, which is even more solid, the weirdest thing is that you can't do anything. It's a different experience because for all the time before, you always could move to the left or the right, you could choose. You could even talk to yourself. Now the inner speech is completely cut off. You can't even utter a word. You can't even move a millimeter to the left or the right. I'm talking about in your mind, let alone the body. The outside world is completely cut off from you. You're like in a deep cave. The doer has gone, vanished. You can't do anything but you're still perfectly aware and conscious. First time in your life you have consciousness without a doer. The knower but no doer. It's weird when you come out afterwards if you have some wisdom and some Dhamma of the Buddha and you look at that. Where did the doer go? You see that the doer, Anicca, was there one moment, now it's gone. Not just gone for a, mo- for a second. When things come and go very quickly, when there's no real persistence of their absence, it's hard to see Anicca. If something is there for many years, and then it's gone for many hours, you can't miss the Anicca of the doer that which is impermanent can you take that to be a self or that which belongs to a self if you come out of a jhana and you look back and reflect upon the doer you should at least be able to get that degree of insight the doer is anatta anat an atiyan not belonging to the self either. If you can understand that much, it's not you, it doesn't belong to you. In the Anatalaka, in the Sutta which we just uh, chanted, the Buddha says at the very end that it's enough to get Nibhida to the doer and the manifestation of the doer, which is this controlling mind, the doing mind, the speaking mind. If you see it as not yours, nothing to do with you, just a manifestation of having candors, that's all it is, just nature, but it doesn't come from you, it doesn't belong to you, it's got nothing to do with you, it's not a self, not mine, not anybody else's. Please never think it's the word of God. Some idiots think like that. Nothing to do with you or anybody. If you can only see that much, you get nibida towards it. Nibida means you just ha- you don't want a bar of it. Nibida means you look upon it as you look upon feces or rubbish. Something to be thrown away, something to be kept clear of. Something not to be interested in. What that means is, having seen that a few times, that when you're meditating and this doer tries to disturb you, you recognize that as Mara, not as wisdom, 
those thoughts, those ideas, those what you're supposed to do, look upon that as Mara, the voice of Mara. Don't listen to it, just let it go. Just allow this the process to happen. Everyone knows what to do in meditation. Anapanasati Sutta, just follow what the Buddha said, don't need to think about it at all. The more you try and think about it, the more you get into a mess. The further you get from the goal. Just get out of the way and allow these things to happen, especially so in the deeper parts of the meditation. These things aren't yours. Even to the point of nimittas coming up, piti sukha coming up, you get to refine parts of the meditation. Even this, just remember that this isn't you either. It doesn't belong to you. Jhana isn't your possession. It's not you either. It's just the nature of the mind to act in this way, this particular part of your career as five candors. It just happens this way. And as the nimittas which happen before you enter full jhana, if you can just look upon those as not me, not mine, just leave them alone, just watch. Then you watch passively. You don't try and control or, or get involved in these things to the point of trying to manipulate them and control them and possess them. If you try and possess the nimitta, it will go, leave it alone, and it will stay. Leave it alone means just watch, be at peace. You've done all that was needed to be done already. Just wait, passively, as quiet as you can be, with the, the Dhamma as your guide. The Dhamma, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, especially Anatta. This is just consciousness. It's not mine. That which do, that which does is not you. You can test if you understand that by stopping the internal commentary, by being passive. That which knows. That which is hearing this. That which is feeling the ache in your legs, that which feels the cold and the heat, all of that which receives all this rubbish in the world. Is that me? Is that mine? Does that belong to me? If it does, then you're very in interested in knowing. You want to know more and more and more things. The possessor. You think that that which, know, you, that which you know is your possession. This is like the professors in the world who gather knowledge, thinking that thereby they're building up a reputation. They're just building up foolishness. In the old age, they forget everything. When they die, it's completely gone. A few years after they die, they're completely disproven and other people come up as the experts in the world. All the knowledge. Is it really useful? But the knowing, the knower, eventually you can actually see that knowing that which knows is just vinyana. The Buddha actually said again and again, six vinyanas, six modes of consciousness to the six senses, and that's all there is of knowing. And all types of consciousness, far and near, refined, coarse, past, present, future, all vinyana, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Beautiful to know that vinyana is anatta, it's not yours. When you know that vinyana is not yours, whatever you're conscious of is just a fantasy, a magician's trick, 
an illusion, just things coming together, passing away again. The biggest part of the illusion is the continuity of consciousness, what appears as the continuity of knowing. That continuity of knowing, whether you're hearing, whether you're seeing, whether you're feeling with the body, it all somehow feels the same. If you've had some experiences of jhana, you've had the experience of like pure mind consciousness, mano-vinyana, which is aloof from the other five vinyanas, which is separated from them for a long period of time. It's just mano-vinyana after mano-vinyana, with none of the other five sense consciousnesses being turned on. When you reflect on the jhana after you emerge from it, and you look back upon it, what was that? You get the taste of the mano-vinyana. You understand what it is, having been separated all by itself for a long period of time. And when you look at ordinary consciousness, when you look at the act of hearing, you see that there, in hearing, is the sotavinyana, the ear consciousness, hand in hand, as it were, with manavinyana. What you hear, the mind knows. What you see, the mind sees also. What you feel with the body, the mind feels also. It is because that the mind consciousness follows almost, you can almost say, not, it's not exactly accurate, just right alongside, just after. Because it's so close with each of the other consciousnesses, it is the mind consciousness which gives the illusion of continuity, which gives the illusion that there is something always conscious. If you see and understand the reality of mano-vinyana, especially through jhanas, then you can separate all these consciousnesses out and you can know, as I've said on this seat before, that the mind consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue and body consciousness are as different as apples, mangoes, bananas, and all sorts of other fruits. They're all fruits, but completely different. Only then can you see the rise and fall of the different types of consciousness, when you can break them apart, separate them. Then you see the rise and fall in consciousnesses, the anicca, also that you start to notice when consciousness is given away. There's many, many consciousnesses. It's very loud, very loud and coarse in what you call like ordinary life. When you start to enter into meditation states, the consciousness becomes very refined. You're not aware of so much and what you're aware of isn't moving. In the world, it moves so fast. It's one of the difficulties for a meditator who has to deal with looking after a monastery or committee meetings. To see the contrast between the objects of consciousness in meditation and the objects of consciousness in the committee meetings or out in the world. So gross, such a great contrast that it can be quite shattering for a few days to the body. In deep meditation, the consciousness is very refined. It doesn't take on too much. And what you're actually noticing there is a whole heap of consciousness has disappeared.
in jhanas, all the five external consciousnesses have disappeared. The knowing has been slashed and cut away until there's only a tiny bit of knowing left. A knowing which can't move. As mentioned before in the jhanas, you're knowing one thing and one thing only, unmoving for long periods of time. Again, it makes the jhana experiences weird compared to this external existence. This one consciousness, okay, it's arising and passing away very quickly, but because it's one thing again and again and again and again and again. It's a strange, very different experience. Start to realize that that which knows is not you. You can't let go of these other consciousnesses if you think they're mine. If you really think that I consciousness, seeing, ear consciousness, nose, tongue, body consciousness is yours, it means you can't let them go. In meditation you're always listening in case something's happening. You always want to open your eyes in case there's something there. You always searching around the body for something to feel just to make sure the body's all right. Actually, you're just addicted to those five consciousnesses. You don't know how to give them away. You don't know what it's like when you give them away. You're afraid to give them away. You're afraid to give away body consciousness, ear consciousness. And there's something to that. It's because that it's these five senses which protect the body. That's their function. To make sure the body survives and is safe. The attachment to the five external consciousnesses is very much caught up with the attachment to the body. Thinking the body is mine. Thinking the five consciousnesses is yours. That fear which comes up in deep meditation is just that. You're throwing away a whole part, a great heap of your sense of self, what you think is mine. You're giving away belongings. Someone came and asked for all the books in your hut, all your tea bags, all the other possessions you have in your hut. They just left you there with just your bowl and three robes. Would you be willing to give it away? If not, why not? If the Dharma asked to give away all of the consciousnesses, would you give it away? Would you be prepared to enter Parinibbana? Why not? because you actually think that these things are yours that you own them, that you've got to care for them, that you, they belong to you give them up the Buddha said, the Arahats said, the Aryas said and you'll be far better off the less you have in the hut the more happy you will be the more you can give away consciousness the deeper you'll go into the jhanas. The jhanas, the Buddha once described, as the cessation of sankharas. The three sankharas, of Vachi sankhara, Kaya sankhara, and Jitta sankhara. The speech, both external and inner, the Vachi sankhara, Kaya sankhara, the body, and Chitta Sankara. He described that as perception and feeling. Mind stuff. And the Sankaras are stopped, abandoned, given away, gradually, in that order. You go into jhanas, the first thing which stops is Vati Sankara. Kaya Sankara disappears. Chitta Sankara. Even the perception and feeling and the mind consciousness eventually stops 
in Niroda Samapati, the attainment of complete cessation of all that's felt, all that's perceived. Consciousness ends there. Why is it for the person who enters cessation, Niroda Samapati, emerges as an arahat or an anagami? Because they've seen the complete cessation of consciousness. When they see that stop, of course they know it's anicca. Of course they know it's an irritation. To be, to know, to do is dukkha. Irritation. You can't intellectualize that. You can't convince anyone else they think you're crazy. You can experience that through the insight which comes from gaining these experiences, these states. That which knows is not you, it's not a self, not mine. If you remember that, you'll find that jhanas become easier. If you remember that the doer is not me, is not mine, is not a self, the jhanas become easier. If you understand that consciousness is dukkha, especially the five external consciousnesses, even the internal consciousness is dukkha. It's less dukkha. If you want to compare the two, the five external consciousnesses of ear consciousness, eye consciousness, nose, tongue and body consciousness is more dukkha, coarser dukkha than mind consciousness dukkha. So give up the external ones first, the coarser ones. And then bit by bit give away the more refined mind consciousness as you go through the jhanas one by one. Until eventually you can get the, the wisdom to give away all consciousness whatsoever and experience cessation in this very life and emerge afterwards and get to that depth of the Buddha's Dhamma. But in the meantime, as you are practicing developing the mind, at any time you can use those as tools to get deeper into meditation because insight leads to giving away. Yatabhuta yana dasana, seeing things as they truly are according to Dhamma and reality, leads to Nibbida and Viraga. If you see that which does as it truly is, you get disgusted by it. If it's true disgust, you just chuck it away and it disappears. I said in an earlier talk, that which does, the inner voice, look upon it like a carcass wrapped around the mind, like a dead dog which you're carrying around. This is thinking, the inner commentary. Look upon it as something disgusting which you're ashamed of, which is irritating, which is making a fool of you. If you can have that sort of nibbida towards that which does and its manifestation of thinking, doing, manipulating, controlling, you find it's easy to stop it. It just disappears. Be careful, you can't stop it because that's more doing. You see it as with nibbida and it stops by itself. You don't control these things. Remember that. Don't think, oh, Ajahn Brahm said I should stop the thinking and so Come on now, stop, stop, stop. How many times have I told you to stop? That's more thinking, more controlling, that's missing the point. See it with the Dhamma, this is disgusting, this is just pain, this is irritating. How long do I have to deal with this and put up with this for? And it stops. But that which knows, see that with Nibbida, this is disgusting. It's an irritation. How long do I have to pull up with this, this uh, being conscious of all the aches and the pains, the heat and the cold in the body? How long do I have to be put up with the sound of the magpies and the crows on the afternoon and the frogs at night time? 
throw it all away. You can't throw the frogs away, that's against the vineyard. You can't kill the crows, but you can kill the consciousness. But you can only do that if you fully understand, or at least take it on faith. It's either through Panya, your own understanding, or through the faith in the Aryans, that you can give away that which does and that which knows. Through faith that these are not you, these are not yours. What you hold on to, what you think is your possession, you will never be able to let go of. If you realize it's got nothing to do with you, it's not yours, you happily let it go. And this is all about happily letting things go. You try it out and you get into deep samadhi. It gives you faith that these are truths. You look upon it more deeply, having gone into samadhi, then the truth of these statements becomes just so obvious they become powerful insight which you'll never forget. This is a way that insight leads to samadhi. Samadhi leads to insight. Insight leads to deeper samadhi. Until you go through all the paths and the fruits, you go through all the jhanas, until you reach complete nibbana. So this is a talk this evening on anatta. We talk how we use it to develop samatha and vipassana. Calm and insight, always going together as a powerful team. That's all I have to say this evening. Has anyone got any questions or comments about this evening's talk? asking a, a question about in the suttas, there is one sutta in the Anguttu Nikaya, I think it's in the nines, it could be the tens, I forget now. It's the simile of the cow who uh, he has a pasture, or she has a pasture, and then she goes to another pasture which is really nice. She knows her way into that pasture, but then she goes into another pasture which is even nicer and loses her way completely, gets completely lost made that simile between a monk who enters into the first jhana and then uh, quickly goes into a second jhana and just misunderstands both afterwards. It's a case that if whenever one gets into any samadhi state, even not even jhanas, you should always spend time at the end of your meditation just reflecting because if it's in a jhana you just cannot reflect, you cannot assess, and you should not try to assess. The assessor is part of the doer. However, after a jhana you should assess and find out exactly what it usually happens quite naturally anyway. Find out what was that. So you get to know very clearly these samadhi states. If you go too quickly into a second jhana and you don't know the first jhana, you haven't really understood it yet. These jhanas can be very um, weird and strange. It does happen that very often, even the first jhana, a person gets in there and never can get back again for months, for years. It's because they misunderstand or they, they don't remember what caused that first jhana to arise. You've got to reflect and know those causes very well. If you know the causes, you know the way in. You can get back there again. Patience is very important. Gradual training. But one of the ways in, one of the causes 
which you should know if entering jhanas is understanding at least a little bit about non-self. I think the only way that I'm not, it's still uncertain whether Christian mystics in the Middle Ages entered jhanas. I don't know of anyone who enters them these days. It was because that they gave up their sense of self and gave it all over to their idea of a god. They just let God take over. However, that doesn't really get you much further into a jhana. Here, that one has to just let the Dharma take over, nature take over. It's the nature of the mind. If it can see that samadhi nimitta, just to go for it. And get all of the, the talking out of the way. Give up your sense of self. Controller or a knower. And then you're, you're laughing. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's all I had to say about it this evening. Okay, we can end the talk now.